And there were some key people like Frederick Douglass, famously, who were actually not in favor of creating a political party. He thought that the Constitution was was rigged. He thought that political parties were not the way to kind of agitate for change. That's our special guest, Dr. Omar Ali, professor of history at UNC Greensboro and author of In the Balance of Power, Independent Black Politics and Third-Party Movements in the United States. I'm Robert Pease, and on The Purple Principle today, a much-needed history lesson on independent action outside the two-party structure that has fostered change and progress. I'm Jillian Youngblood, and I am so on board to learn more about these third-party movements. I grew up in the South, and we learned a lot about the Civil War and Reconstruction, but I don't know how much we ever learned about things like the Liberty and Free Soil Parties. And these groups spawned the formation of the anti-slavery Republican Party in the 1850s. And Jillian, I actually took a ton of American history classes in high school and college, but none of them emphasized this independent nature of black leadership in the way Dr. Ali does regarding Frederick Douglass. He was won over and he saw the value of creating a third party that was anti-slavery and using it as one of a number of tactics or think about it as like a tool to engage the political system. No memorization required for today's history class. It's a painless and fascinating trip from the period of abolition to more contemporary civil rights, featuring Rob's interview with Dr. Ali and a bit of archival work here at The Purple Principle. Unfortunately, there is no existing audio of Frederick Douglass himself giving the speeches that reverberated so widely in his time. But there is a reading by James Earl Jones of the Douglass speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? the rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence, bequeathed by your fathers, is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. Other major figures in this story of independent viewpoint and mobilization include W.E.B. Du Bois, Malcolm X, Harold Washington, and Lenora Fulani. But let's start by getting acquainted with Dr. Omar Ali, author of In the Balance of Power. Well, let me first of all say thank you for inviting me to be on this podcast and creating a space like this where people can have conversations that are not overdetermined by the two-party framework. So I deeply appreciate the name of the podcast and what you are providing folks a space to do. And what the book basically does is it, it tells a story of the ways in which African Americans have had to effectively insert themselves into the dominant structures, political structures of the society by creating independent political organizations, associations, networks, and uh, parties in some instances to advance civil, political, and economic rights of African-Americans and joined at times poor and working white people and other groups of people to advance democracy in America. Well, let's start with some of the major figures familiar to most of our listeners. 
You briefly mentioned Frederick Douglass. He had a remarkable transformation from looking at slavery as kind of a religious or spiritual issue and then became more and more involved in politics. So tell us about the transformation of Frederick Douglass. Well, I think like all leaders with a deep and abiding commitment to the people, and in this case, I think Douglas identified most obviously closely with African-Americans, but I think he was pro-people in general. He evolved because he saw some of the limitations of whatever tactic he was deploying. Like he moved from the idea of moral suasion, which was the idea that you could basically, through teaching one's own story and that of others who had been enslaved and relying on religious doctrine, you could morally sway people to do the right thing. And that, you know, that he saw as limited. Ultimately, it took armed revolution in the form of the Civil War for slavery to be overthrown. And so, yes, there were some people who saw the light, if you will, and decided to free their own slaves, but they were just handfuls of people. The vast majority of slave owners did not want that to go away. Tell us a little bit more about W.E.B. Du Bois, who obviously embraced several different ideologies as a means towards perhaps some progress on civil rights, perhaps didn't see the success in his lifetime that came soon afterwards. Despite all propaganda, we saw democracy failing in America. Fewer and fewer people went to the polls. It was increasingly difficult to know for whom or for what one was voting. But he's certainly a fascinating figure. Yeah. Tell us about his journey in this. Yeah, I mean, like Douglas, I mean, he began to see some of the limitations of his organizing, which went from effectively using the pen and to tell the stories of and tragedies and document the lives of Black people to joining major parties, a, a wing or, or, or forming coalitions that ultimately would create challenges to the two major parties is what I want to say. And then effectively abandoning it and saying, well, the two-party system isn't going to work and nor are these third parties. And he left ultimately, but he laid the groundwork for many others to understand some of the broader history. Yeah, well, let's jump ahead to the civil rights era. And you talk about the famous speech by Malcolm X. I believe it's called the ballot or bullet speech. And despite the fact that you are in a position to be the determining factor, what do you get out of it? The Democrats have been in Washington, D.C. only because of the Negro vote. They've been down there four years. And all other legislation they wanted to bring up, they brought it up and gotten it out of the way, and now they bring up you. And now they bring up you. You put them first, and they put you last. And so Malcolm X is expressing there a concern over dependence on the Democratic Party, which is a theme throughout your book. If you want real political leverage, you don't want to be so loyal to a party that they don't do anything for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In his famous, you know, the ballot or the bullet speech, he talks about how any kind of dependency is problematic and really identifies both parties as limitations on the freedom of African-Americans. And so he was a critical early voice. Mm-hmm. 
That's our special guest today, Dr. Omar Ali, prolific author on the African diaspora. He's discussing some of the most notable independent Black intellectuals in U.S. history, Frederick Douglass, W.E.B. Du Bois, Malcolm X, and others, which makes us wonder about the broader forces at work here, the movements behind these leaders that represented hundreds of thousands of Americans. And eventually millions. In this part of the interview, we dig deeper into that movement history, beginning with the Abolitionist Liberty Party that played a spoiler role in the 1844 elections, but also spawned the anti-slavery Republican Party. That was formed only a few years before bringing Abraham Lincoln to the White House in 1861. Well, so I think it was the, the philosopher Fred Newman, with whom I worked with a number of years, uh, who was himself a leader of independence, who shared with me an an insight when I was finishing up my doctoral dissertation, uh, which is that you need to look at at least 20 years before the formation of any organization to really see what it means. And so the Liberty Party really is uh, formed as a result of the anti-slavery movement which is really a second wave of abolitionism. The first one being sort of at the time of the American Republic formation. And so the Liberty Party was created as a tactic to engage the political establishment. I think that they did not have any illusions of necessarily winning, although you know in some cases there was close, but they were trying to create a public conversation around the issue of slavery. Even though a person like Thomas Jefferson did confide in some of his fellow planners that, you know, if there is a just God, we're in for it because (laughs) he saw that there was a morality to slavery as well. So it wasn't like people were completely clueless, but it wasn't a public issue yet. And so the abolitionists had to make it a public issue. So a way to make it a public issue was to form a third party call them a Liberty Party, and try to advocate for an anti-slavery platform. So the Liberty Party competes in several elections, I believe 1840, 1844, but then things get a little complicated, seemingly, when the Free Soil Party is formed as more of like a, a moderate or an incremental or more pragmatic approach. So tell us about the formation of the Free Soil Party and their position which wasn't fully for abolition. It was for, as I understand it, anti-extension or the extension of slavery to new states. Yeah. Yeah. The Free Soil Party, like you're saying, was not an outright abolitionist party. It was in some ways, I mean, I think people saw it as a way of, of increasing the size of the camp of people who could be, ultimately could undermine the system of slavery. And so the idea was to not allow the new territories that would come into the Republic to become states that allowed for slavery. And they advocated for this position, which at the time was quite radical uh, relative to everything. And many people who weren't willing to abolish slavery outright or see it abolished, believed that there was something fundamentally wrong with it. And the argument brought people who were not anti-slavery, but didn't like the idea of their free labor, that is paid labor, to be degraded by having people who worked alongside them who were slaves. And so it was an interesting mix of a coalition, as 
politics oftentimes brings strange breadfellows. So both the Liberty and the Free Soil parties, you know, work extremely hard, but I guess do not really have electoral success. And yet, kind of amazingly, as we look back, the Republican Party is formed as the anti-slavery party in 1854, and six years later, it wins the White House. So what was the contribution of the Liberty and the Free Soil parties to the rather rapid success of not an outright abolitionist party, but certainly an anti-slavery party? Yeah. I mean, it's um, in some ways, you can think of the Free Soil and Liberty parties as having to develop and then cultivate a network which would grow in time and create a movement which would lead to the formation of the Republican Party. I mean, it's all about movement formation, building networks. And so the Republican Party was the beneficiary of those who had been working 10, 15 years prior to that to establish sort of this idea of a third party that was either directly, depending on the wing of the party, against slavery, or certainly was not going to try to extend it. So in some ways, it was a continuation of the same phenomenon. So it's remarkable to look back now at how quickly a third party became a major party. It's almost inconceivable now that 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 could happen in the same way. So I guess the two parties have had a lot of time to entrench their power. Absolutely. But post-Civil War and Reconstruction, there's another interesting party that you talk about that maybe a lot of people are not so familiar with, the Greenback Labor Party. Yeah, so this is a movement that kind of continues this idea of the sanctity and the importance of free labor, and that this is something that all people should have the right to, to exercise their own labor under their own agency. And so it's part of that early labor movement. And now we're talking about people that are more in urban centers, even though a lot of their base is actually rural still. So this is a shift towards, well, you know, networks that will be given expression in the form of the Knights of Labor and, and other labor associations. So again, another party is formed in the 1890s, the People's Party. This is a time when Democrats in the South are, you know, really suppressing, disenfranchising black voters, you know, turnout is going down. And yet somehow the People's Party is able to have some success in local elections in South Carolina and Texas. Yeah. So when we look at African Americans in particular, you have emancipation, you have reconstruction, which really begins in 1863. So two years before the Civil War ends, it's beginning the reconstructing of the uh, rebuilding of the infrastructure in the northern part of the South, where the Union is in, in control, and also the political institutions. And reconstruction will will be enforced till about 1877 when it comes to sort of collapses under pressure of Democratic Party interests. And it's in this period where you have African-Americans trying to figure out what to do. They don't just sort of say, call it quits because they can't, they're not in that privileged position to do so. So they have to keep figuring out ways to keep pushing for, again, basic civil, political, economic rights. And so 
they form through the churches a leadership that will take the form of various agricultural associations. And you have white farmers who are doing something similarly. And so you have organizations that are like called the Granges and other groups that will come together in the 1880s. And as far as African-Americans are concerned, the umbrella organization was called the Colored Farmers Alliance, which started in Texas, but really spread throughout the South. And so they decide to go into the electoral arena. And so together with white independents who were not happy with the Democratic Party in the South, and which was the dominant party in the South, it was the party of white supremacy, they come together and they form what's called the People's Party or the Populists. And they field candidates. And it's in this period of time that you actually have this coalition made up of African-Americans who were, many of them had been actually slaves just years prior, coming together with white Southerners, many of whom had been Confederate soldiers, and they take over. They actually take over parts of the South. And you see a rise, a pushback by the paramilitary organizations that are tied to the Democratic Party, most famously the Ku Klux Klan. And you see a rise of lynchings and a terrorism in the black community, but also directed towards white sympathizers. And that movement will come to a sort of a, an end by 1898 in North Carolina with the Wilmington riots, but across the South by 1900. Let's talk a little bit about the progressive era. And it's always hard to summarize an era, but it does seem looking back that from a civil rights standpoint, it's a little disappointing. I mean, you have these kind of broad-minded progressive individuals like Robert La Follette and Teddy Roosevelt. And, you know, they're approached by the leaders of the African-American community like W.E.B. Du Bois, and he's kind of rebuffed by the progressives. Yeah, it's true. It seems like dumb. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm just saying, but I think that racism is so deeply entrenched in the American psyche that I think it was hard for labor leaders to, in some ways, see African-Americans fully as their brothers and sisters, if you will. And in some ways, the analysis, well, well, we're just going to organize all workers and not attend to this issue of race. They didn't attend also to issues of of gender. So in some ways, they were, they were white male leaders of their times. That's our special guest today, historian Dr. Omar Ali, author of In the Balance of Power. And there's an important point in there that really bears repeating. The Liberty and Free Soil Parties, which I bet many of us didn't hear much about in school, they really paved the way for the anti-slavery Republican Party formed in 1854. Which then overwhelms the Whigs that have been a major party for decades. So there's this ebb and flow in our party politics over time, or at least at that time. It does seem like the major parties are so much more deeply entrenched today, but there have been independent-minded Black politicians who've challenged that dominance not too long ago, such as presidential candidate Lenora Filani and Chicago Mayor Harold Washington. Washington managed to defeat the Democratic machine that kept the Richard Daley dynasty in the Chicago mayor's office for, get this, not two or three terms, but between the father and the son, 11, count them, 11 terms, totaling over four decades. 
So let's talk about three of the more modern campaigns by either black independent candidates or, in one case, an insurgent Democratic candidate, Harold Washington. Democracy is not a goal. It's not so many pounds of this or ounces of that. Democracy is a process which is designed to bring out the broadest possible spectrum of opinion for the purpose of making public policy and decisions. And so in Chicago's 1983 Democratic primary for the mayor's office, Harold Washington was somehow able to defeat the very powerful Democratic Party that controlled Chicago politics for decades. Tell us how Washington was able to do that. Well, I think it all comes down to base building. And I think that sometimes the base building can only take you so far, but he was a great organizer and the people around him really had built an independent base of support, mostly among African-Americans, but among other groups of people as well. And he was saying things that challenged the established partisan system in Chicago and was able to pull this off and was seen as sort of like a model for something that could possibly be done on the national level. Unfortunately, he died. And that effort was carried on in part by the work of a new generation of independent Black leaders, namely Dr. Lenora Filani, who had been working with Jesse Jackson to try to urge him to go the course of independence and run in the Democratic Party primary. But then if he didn't get the nomination, go as an independent. Ultimately, he stayed with the Democratic Party. And she said, well, if he's not doing that, let me run as an independent so we can build a movement that would bring together not just African-Americans, you know, to not get have them be so dependent on the Democratic Party, but people from across America. Yeah, well, the Jesse Jackson campaign in 88, I think a lot of people may have forgotten how competitive he was as candidate, how electrifying his speeches were at that time. Think of Appalachian, remember, most poor people are not on welfare. They work every day. They do the heavy lifting. They take the early bus. They work the late shift. Most poor people are neither brown nor black. They're white, they're female, they're young, they're invisible, but they're all God's children. Let's have a one big tent America. Certainly Obama credited him later on, but 20 years before Obama, you know, here was a national figure competing very successfully. Why do you think he decided not to run as an independent? And do you think in hindsight, he might have had some success? I don't know if he would have had some success, but he would have helped to build the movement of independence. I think that he got wooed back into the fold of the Democratic Party. In some ways, there's a parallel where I think that he thought that he was he was more powerful than than was the case. And I'll just say this about President Obama, who had built an independent base among Americans and literally his database made up of Democrats, obviously, but some Republicans, disaffected Republicans, and independents. But he essentially gave over his entire database to the Democratic Party, because he thought that his, if you will, his Obama-ness, <laughs> the magic of Obama, the extraordinariness of this person, you know, his abilities would be able to sort of maintain itself beyond the party. But the parties are very powerful. 
very, very powerful, not only economically, but culturally. Basically, three roads were being sort of carved out. One was, you know, stick with the Democratic Party, because at that point they had gotten some Black elected officials in office, form a an all-Black political party, or form a multiracial third party. And ultimately, Jackson uh, spoke vehemently sort of about the importance of a Black party, but he would ultimately side with the Democratic Party. And again, very powerful forces. I mean, many of the great heroes like John Lewis and many others had who had been independents on the streets. They were The civil rights movement was not a Democratic Party movement or a Republican movement. It was an independent movement. That's what it was. And it was effectively co-opted by the Democratic Party. Well, let's talk then a little bit about Lenora Filani. It's really remarkable. And I, I'm not sure, again, our young listeners know that she was able to get on the ballot in all 50 states. And I think the biggest issue in this year's race is the vote for independence. I think we need to drop the two-party system and go independent with a passion if people want change in America. And of course, she wasn't allowed on the presidential debate stage, but she may have very well laid the groundwork for Perot's bigger success four years later when he gets 19% of the vote. So tell us about Lenora Filani and how, you know, she kind of laid the groundwork not only for a third party run, but possibly for Obama and other candidates. Yeah. I mean, Filani was part of that sort of that tradition or, or expression of independent Black leadership that goes back to Frederick Douglass and Du Bois and and Harold Washington, which was to, again, create something independent of the two major parties and do that by bringing people together. Her voice was uh, is one of a progressive sort of politics, but it's also one that includes space for people who only want to agree on maybe that the process needs to be opened up. So interestingly, when we think about the American Revolution, it was a revolution that was talking about political process, which is not something that we talk about today in politics. Today, we talk about really where do people stand on education? Where do they stand on law enforcement? Where do they stand on the different things like these policy positions, but not the process itself. But she was saying, no, I have a progressive sort of outlook on the world, but I will work with anyone who wants to challenge the, the limitations of our electoral process here to make it more inclusive. Well, that's great. Maybe we should end with a Filani quote. I'm not sure if I'm getting this right, and maybe you can add a little bit of context to it. But I believe after her campaign, she was asked, was it toughest to be a Black or a female candidate? Yeah, I love that quote. I love that. So she said that basically, yeah, right after, you know, she was asked by, you know, was it more difficult, Dr. Filani, to run as, a, as an African-American or as a Black candidate or as a woman? And she thought, and she responded, actually being an independent because, which is incredible, right? And the reason why is because the laws have been designed to exclude independence, regardless of color, race, whatever. But it's the overall culture that, again, to go to the political scientists, has been buttressed by the political science establishment, with few exceptions, to make it seem like the only way you can function politically in this world is through parties and through ideology. But it's a challenging time culturally in America beyond the economic sort of hardships that many people are going through. And But we have to push back on that 
uh, to be more philosophical, to be more playful, to be more open to working with people who we don't agree with on many issues, but we might agree with on the issues of process and inclusion. That's an important thing, and that's the founding of this country. No taxation without representation is a call to arms around political process, not just around the narrow idea of taxation. It's about the representation and inclusion. So I think that that is at the heart of the best of what our country has to offer the world, and we should bring that out more. That was Dr. Omar Ali, historian and author of In the Balance of Power, Independent Black Politics and Third-Party Movements in the United States. A really informative book, and with all due respect to other historians, refreshingly easy to read. That's absolutely true, Jillian. Dr. Ali writes as he speaks, authoritative but accessible, and he's raised awareness of some really important movements and issues for indie-minded Americans of all races. First and most importantly, the insight that the civil rights movement of the 20th century was an independent mobilization outside the two-party system. And that the two major parties so constantly ignored racial issues throughout our early history that Black Americans felt they had no choice but to form other groups and parties. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. We saw democracy failing in America. You put them first and they put you last. They do the heavy lifting. They take the early bus. They work the late shift. We need to drop the two-party system and go independent with a passion. For those who'd like more on this topic, we'll be posting a longer-length interview with Dr. Omar Ali available for our Patreon supporters. Stay tuned for more on that. But next time on The Purple Principle, we're going to journey, if only by microphone, to the great state of Kentucky, home to world-renowned whiskey, horse races, and the hugely successful podcast, Pantsuit Politics, where smart meets spiritual in respectful conversation, even about things political. I mean, we really formulated the Gracefield Political Conversations as a subtitle to our book, and we were trying to capture the environment we'd built over years at Pantsuit Politics, where we do use the word grace a lot. And what we were trying to do is put the focus on the connection that we hold with one another. Um, but grace is often about giving it when you don't receive it. And so we try really hard to say this is an exercise not to convince everyone to agree with us or even to adopt our style but to set an expectation for ourselves in terms of what values we bring into our political conversations. We'll be speaking with the creators and hosts of that show, Sarah Stewart Holland and Beth Silvers, who've put forth over 500 episodes and written a few books in spare time that you wouldn't even think they'd have, including, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. Right or wrong, we hope you'll listen to that episode. Look for our Patreon page coming soon. Connect with us via our website and social media and stay indie-minded in these polarized times. This has been Robert Pease and Jillian Youngblood for the Purple Principle team. Allison Byrne, producer. Kevin A. Klein, senior audio engineer. Emily Holloway, digital strategy. Dom Scarlett and Grant Sherritt, research associates. Emma Trujillo, audio associate. Original music composed and created by Ryan Adair Rooney. The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production.